The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Eight minutes after 11 o'clock. In our final conversation on the show today, I want us to focus on the NATO-announced military package for the Ukraine. So last week, the U.S., along with other NATO partners, uh, member states, they've announced a massive military package for the Ukraine. Uh, and the, com- the package contains a wide range and variety of heavy weapons. So it's not just money that this package uh, has announced. Um, and so some of it, in- it w- among some of the, the, the military weaponry it includes, Germany has pulled out of. And it's facing, remember Germany also being a NATO member state, Germany in particular is facing immense pressure from its NATO allies for its reluctance to supply very specific weaponry. A Leopard 2 tank uh, that will help to bolster, bolster Ukraine's fighting capacity. Um, and he just, the German argument really is that it's reminiscent for them in many ways of World War II. Um, and that they will, uh, you know, they will monitor the situation and decide at a later stage if they want to participate by donating this. But importantly, what is the detail thereof? The PCC's Jessica Parker, she was at that uh, press briefing and she filed this report for us. This is what Kiev wants, but can't yet have. German-made leopard tanks to help defend and reclaim its territory from Russia. Britain's gone first in sending Western main battle tanks, but it's a fraction of what's being asked for. Hundreds of thank you are not hundreds of tanks. All of us can use thousands of wars in discussions, but I cannot put wars instead of guns that are needed against Russian artillery. Defence chiefs have pledged fresh support, but Berlin is still resisting pressure to release its Leopard 2s. It gets to decide where German-made tanks can go, even those bought by other countries. Minister, why is Berlin so hesitant on this issue? We are not really hesitating, we are just uh, very carefully in balancing all the pros and contras. We are not talking just about delivering anything to anybody. This is a new kind of measure. These crowds in Berlin want Germany to do more, but the government has its eye on broader public opinion. The country's World War II history still casts a long shadow, while there are fears of escalation. They've not made a decision on the provision of uh, Leopard tanks. Uh, What we're really focused on uh, is making sure that uh, Ukraine has the capability uh, that it needs to be successful right now. The NATO military alliance is pressing a sense of urgency. There is a need uh, for uh, support to Ukraine to enable them not only to survive, but actually to retake territory to win this war. But there's a lot of talk, of course, about a Russian spring offensive. But do you think Ukraine can take back territory this year? Absolutely. And that's the reason why NATO allies are uh, and partners are providing uh, significantly more support to uh, Ukraine. A Soviet-era tank in a war of today. Frontline Ukrainian units are hungry for more modern weapons to help unfreeze this conflict. Jessica Parker, BBC News in Ramstein. 
And my guest for this conversation is Faith Mabera, a senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue, and Helmut romer Heitman, who's a defense analyst. Helmut, I, I want to start with you, uh, and I want us to just get an understanding of the artillery that is at stake here. Uh, Germany saying that they're just undergoing a careful assessment uh, before deciding to deploy the Leopard 2 tanks, arguing that it's not just any weapon for anybody and that there needs to be a careful consideration thereof. Tell us what these Leopard 2 tanks are. Why are they so special? Okay, I think just one thing first, if I may. What everybody seems to be forgetting is that Germany cut back so much after the end of the Cold War, they've only got about 300 tanks. If they give any away, that leaves their army with almost nothing. Ah, they used okay. to have 3,500 tanks. Now they've got, in fact, we've got 225, plus a few in the factory they've now brought back to be modernized and brought back in line. So they, in fact, don't have many to give away. Okay, having said that, the Leopard 2 is in a line with the, the later versions of the American Abrams, arguably one of the best-named battle tanks in the world. It's got a, an outstanding fire control stabilization system. It's got pretty good protection. It's got a very good gun with good armor penetration capability. And like pretty much most German equipment, it's a, it's a very reliable beast. It's not likely to let you down at an embarrassing moment. So that's, that's why it's so, so desired, desirable. And that's also why, in fact, when they cut down, they managed to sell a lot. I think over 2,000 they sold to various other countries. Right. Now, what I think since the BBC report, the German government, I think yesterday evening or this morning, said that if Poland or another country want to supply Leopard 2s to Ukraine, the German government will not block it. You know, as the exporter, the original exporter, they can theoretically block it. But they said they wouldn't block it. So I think the real issue with the Germans is they don't have enough to spare. And they're probably just embarrassed to admit that because they don't like to admit that their military is in such disarray at the moment. Right. So would it be fair to describe the Leopard 2 as the best tanker in the market? Look, it's probably the best one in, in, in large-scale service. I personally think it's a bit better than the American Abrams, largely because it's diesel-powered, not gas turbine, which, is, which brings limitations. Um, the others are, all have some, I believe in my personal view, some problems. I mean, the French Leclerc is a very good tank, for instance, mm. outstanding tank. The Challenger has a good rep, but it's not been up against the modern army. We'd have to see how it does. It has a couple of visible weaknesses, but they're in very, very small numbers, so they are hardly relevant. Mm. If you're talking tanks that are available in large numbers, you're talking to the West. You're talking Leopard 2 and you're talking Abrams. And of the two, my personal view, and that's just my view, is that the, the Leopard is probably the, the better tank. Yeah. So they're both, both very good tanks. The Americans, the only people who actually have tanks in sufficiently large numbers to give several hundred or even a thousand to Ukraine, without disarming themselves in the process. Yeah. How, how, how important would this then be in addition to the Ukraine's military defense uh, artillery uh, inventory? Uh, do they really need it against what uh, against the Russians? What do the Russians have at this moment? You know, artillery can prepare the way for you. In the long-range artillery they have can, can disrupt things in the rear of the enemy positions, hit their headquarters, hit their assembly areas, ammo dumps, things like that. Um, it's not going to break you in or through an enemy position. That you have to do with people on the ground. And they need tanks to do the actual breakthrough and deal with opposing tanks that may pop up. Because it'll be, you know, usually in situations where anti-tank missiles don't work all that well. Terrain is, is against the range or sometimes too short. The, you know, people get hung up on tanks supposedly being invulnerable or in this, or today not being invulnerable. It's not really that they're invulnerable. It's just they're a lot less vulnerable than an infantryman walking on his two feet. Or, or a thin-skin vehicle. It's a combination of mobility, protection, and, and firepower. That's what a tank brings to the party. And nothing else quite matches a tank 
and nothing quite matches one of the bigger modern tanks. And certainly the Russian tanks, while they, they're not bad, um, have limitations. There's some tactical ones, which will be a lot of details we're going to know, but they also have a problem that when penetrated, they tend to blow up and kill the crew, which, which most yeah. Western tanks don't do anymore. Yeah. Uh, and just finally, how, how significant is this NATO package that, uh, along with the U.S., that they had donated to uh, the Ukraine? Look, it is, in, in the sense it gives the Ukrainians a lot of additional capability, but it's still primarily defensive capability. Not without, without main battle tanks, it doesn't really give them the clout to take back territory that has been occupied by the Russians. They may, may be able to do it with just old Russian tanks that they get from uh, former Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, I believe they're getting 100 or so from T-72s from Morocco, and they may be, may be able to buy some of those from elsewhere. Of course, getting the old Russian tanks into service doesn't give them an edge over the Russian tanks that the Russians are using, but is a lot quicker to bring into service and train, because the crew's already trained on them. The maintainers know how to maintain and repair them. That makes life a lot easier. Mm. Um, those might make enough of a difference then. But, of course, but a, whole, a large number of, of Leopard 2s or Abrams would, would really make a critical difference. Yeah. And just from your assessment at the moment, how strong is uh, the Russian military against the Ukrainian military with its uh, support from NATO and America? Look, the Russian, Russian military overall is vastly larger and stronger than, than Ukraine's. What people do tend to overlook is that, that vast Russian military includes all sorts of other services, you know, strategic weapons, etc. So the army actually isn't a hell of a lot bigger than the Ukrainian army with its reserves call up. They can make it bigger if they call up the reserves, but their reserve training system hasn't been all that great. So I think the they tried the to did Putin not Putin did put out a call for reservists to be uh, conscripted once again, and there seems to, it yeah. seemed to have not landed well. No, I think you see the problem is they've been advertising this thing the whole time as a special military operation. Don't worry, it's not a war. We're not going to have to mobilize or do anything like that. And now second phase mobilization, people are beginning to question us a little bit. You know what went wrong? I mean, what went wrong was basically their their, their assumptions were wrong and their planning was wrong. Otherwise, it would have rolled all over Ukraine. Um, Russia now, if it actually wants to win this war, Russia has to hunker down and buy quite a lot of time. Mm, if it mm. buys a lot of time, it can actually train up reservists, bring back old equipment into service, which may be old and crummy, but is in large numbers, and that has numbers do count, and also hope that the, the Western nations get bored with the war and, and start cutting back on support to Ukraine. That's the Russian, the Russian secret to victory now is to buy a lot of time. Mm. Ukraine's Thank- secret is to not give them time. Yeah. Helmut, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Uh, we're going to have... Anytime. Thank you. Uh, uh, Faith, I want to bring you in here. And and less outside of the detail of the military combat itself, but more around what this package says about the alignment of uh, uh, geopolitics. It seems Ukraine quite squarely is an auxiliary member of NATO without the official membership. Is that a fair way to read it? Um, this is it's actually uh, pretty fair because and here I'm alluding to comments made, I think it was last week, uh, by the Ukrainian uh, defense minister who actually inadvertently admitted that essentially what is happening is that Ukraine is being um, used as a proxy, NATO proxy war, um, a proxy actor um, in, in the war against um, Russia. So it, it might have been a tacit admission on his part, but it certainly, I think, gives us a clear understanding of just some of the unspoken elements um, of what really underpins um, the, the prolonged 
um, sort of prolonged approach that not only the collective work has taken in regard to the war, but also um, the bigger prospects about getting to the negotiating table with Russia. Yeah. Is it then axiomatic that, um, you know, the United States and NATO are involved in a proxy war? It, it's been the science and the writing was on the wall, I think, for a while back. Um, and I don't want to go into too much detail going as far back as um, 2008 um, with the onset of the, the, the war against um, Eastern Ukraine. Um, you want to even go into the further details about the Maidan revolution that actually saw the U.S. backing um, the installment of uh, pro-Russian separatist um, and uh, pro-Russian uh, separatist movement in, in Ukraine and also promoting and taking down um, this very um, particular government that was poised to to have a very anti-Moscow element in, in Kiev. So that, that history is, is one that has been um, sort of unfolding in the backdrop. But I think uh, importantly also is the statement um, over time that um, Russian President Putin has been making about the need for NATO to honor its previous pledge, its previous commitment, not to, to um, expand eastward. So essentially, in that case, Ukraine then became a very critical flashpoint in the bigger geopolitical scheme of things. Yeah. And, and, and that is why, um, precisely as Ramos mentioned, when he launched the special military operation, in, in um, last year, February, it was specifically as he outlined it um, and from what we were reading from his statement, that the major strategic objectives then were to ensure the demilitarization of Ukraine and the demilitarization of Ukraine. And I think that informed the, the larger tactical and strategic decisions that the Russian army was, was using and conducting um, its offensive in, in Ukraine. Yeah. Helmut makes the argument that the Russian military is far bigger than the Ukrainian military. I'm, I'm assuming that means in its uh, artillery inventory as well as it's in human resource, that it has more combatants. Uh, it does have more combatants. And we're asking about the, the, the recent uh, vast mobilization efforts that Putin put out um, towards the end of last year. That already adds up to, um, by my estimation, just over 300,000 men. Um, onto the, the, the Russian um, sort of outfit. But interestingly, um, and I think this speaks to just the fluidity of battlefield dynamics, um, if, you, if you follow a lot of the development, of course, there's been um, territorial gains and losses on both sides um, of, of, of the war in terms of both Ukraine and, and Russia have claimed strategic um, battlefields and territorial gains over the past few months. But I think... For me, it's becoming interesting because you almost think that this question of the tanks that has emerged in recent weeks comes at an inflection point in just the trajectory of the war. Mm. So we saw up until September, for instance, um, last year when uh, when uh, um, Ukraine claimed uh, and actually did take a, a very key battlefield victory in winning over Kharkiv, that counteroffensive was a major um, territorial gain for them. But juxtapose that with also Russia, um, not only the win in terms of the, the referenda for the, the two provinces of Minsk um, and Donetsk, which are voted now to be um, autonomous regions in terms of um, close alignment with, with um, um, separating from, from um, Ukraine in that sense, um, because of the Russian majority within them, but also um, just in the in the aftermath of that, we saw almost a stalemate um, happening, but that stalemate didn't last too long. 
and now we have a few weeks ago there's a significant capture of um, the city of Solidar, which is a key, it's a very critical um, sort of location in terms of the Ukrainian defensive line. So by Russia actually capturing that territory, we now begin to see also another critical turning point in terms of the war. But and I think this is what has fostered the current drive and the push for um, that, that Zelensky was making in terms of greater or even more um, um, sort of military um, aids from, from NATO and from the U.S. and, and other collective West in terms of finding uh, more weapons to Ukraine. So I yeah. think that for me was a critical um, moment in time in terms of the, the trajectory of the, of, the, of the war. Yeah. And just uh, importantly then about that difference in, 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 in size and capacity, if it will it do you ever foresee it coming to a point where the military aid that America and NATO gives to the Ukraine will not come only in the form of weapons and money, but will also have to come in the form of boots on the ground? That then does make it a full-on uh, global war, right? Yes, that, that essentially puts us firmly in the grasp of the World War III, um, which is something that not only the European public, but also the American public has been firmly opposed to. Um, I think as the, as the months have gone on, we've seen public opinion in this country, in the, not only in the transatlantic area, but generally shifting towards a questioning of the, 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 the bellicose rhetoric that we've seen coming out of the collective West. And there's someone now pressing for peace. And that, I think, is the, the key in, this, in the bigger question of things. So on one hand, you have the U.S. and the collective West, which is pressing for a military victory against Russia because um, for various geopolitical reasons that we've discussed, but also because um, they, they cannot um, begin to even um, sort of think of, of the humiliation that they would have in terms of losing um, to a dominant Russia. They can't contend with that um, and then come, come to reconcile with that. But also, on the other hand, um, Russia is also keen on reasserting um, its national security objectives and reasserting yeah. National security red lines, which have been tra- traversed um, quite spectacularly um, over the decades. So Putin is, is quite serious about um, reasserting um, his, 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 his seriousness about um, NATO honoring um, its pledge about not expanding yeah. um, towards its territory. What, what, what are the what are the prospects of the war in Ukraine reaching that critical point? where the support that Ukraine will require are boots on the ground. What are the prospects of that? So that is what I was getting to when I was saying that um, the, the Western leaders, the leaders in the collective world will have to contend with public opinion because there's largely um, a backlash that is emerging about having uh, boots on the ground. Um, there's, there's, there's great hesitancy on their, on their part to send troops to the ground. Hence, the bigger discussion about this unfolding as a proxy um, configuration. But also, um, it's, it's now the question about whether, and, and this is what, is what has been largely missing in mainstream media, is the bigger focus on the back channels, um, the, 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 perhaps a look to reanimating the Istanbul negotiations that so um, getting them primed for having um, talks. Uh, and this is also unfolding against a bigger growing um, trust deficit between not only Russia and Ukraine, but Russia, Ukraine, and NATO allies about just getting to the table. So all these things, um, I think, are, are leading up to what we see a prolonged um, fighting. But 
eventually, um, and, and even when you look at um, just history, wars either end on the negotiating table or they end in terms of a decisive military victory by one side. Um, as to what will happen um, going forward, that remains to be seen. But from my assessment at, at this moment in time is that um, Russia is gaining quite considerably in terms of not only strategic yeah. time time, um, and, and also um, in terms of how, that's why the Ukraine is very desperate for, for battlefield um, reinforcement. But yeah. also the, 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 the determinant in this case will be whether they have the capability to even use the hodgepodge of, of weapons system that are coming in from the West. Because you have the issue of interoperability um, among the Ukrainian forces and even whether they're able to replace um, their own um, competent skills in action in adequate time to use um, the variety of weapons that are streaming and actually use them effectively. Yeah. So that, I think those, those are the determining factors in, in, in just looking at the, the shifting dynamic. Can we account for in our projections as to where this may or may not go for irrational decision-making? On either um, part, by um, the way, on either part. Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. Uh, again, so, so 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 your argument is that leaders in the West will have to contend, particularly uh, with the NATO member states and the U.S., will have to contend with public opinion uh, as they go along in deciding how much and to what extent to give support to the Ukraine. Irrational decision-making will be a leader overlooking public opinion and going right ahead with uh, aggressively supporting the Ukraine to the point where it becomes a full-out war. Uh, is is there a prospect of that happening? Wars in the past have always had a leader thinking irrationally at one or other point. Uh, as to the question of rational decision-making, remember also that why Ukraine is unique in this case is because in addition to being a geopolitical flashpoint, it's also, I think it's the stakes that are uh, the, high, the, the, nature, the high stakes uh, nature um, of the issues on the table. So, Number one, you also have the specter of nuclear confrontation looming over us, um, which is something that the public is, is broadly opposed to. And if, and if a leader in the collective West decides to go against the drain, it will be a question of them having to, to reckon um, with the electorate um, in terms of, of, of um, maybe to the detriment of their own political mm, survival, mm. which is what we've been seeing also unfolding, the backlash in a lot of European capitals about the cost of living pressures stemming yeah. from from the economic fallout of, of this war is, is just one, one aspect of it. Um, so it's, it's the question of political survival, it's the question of um, all-out consequences um, yeah. of driving us towards the World War III. Um, but it's also, I think, as Helmut says, it's a question of um, whether just the control of the narrative, I think, is, is important. So we have very, very many dimensions at which this was playing out. There's the geopolitical element, there's also the media um, sort of information. And the public, the public narrative element of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So That's... all those forces, I think, um, are, are key determinants yeah. that, that uh, a leader in, in his right mind would would, um, would be wise to consider, particularly if you want, to, of course, to ensure your own political survival in the bigger yeah. scheme of things. Let's pause it there. Give us a call, 086-000-2032. We take your calls on the other side of this. Mpose Tole has your news headlines. Thanks, Oliver. Good morning. Making headlines, ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa has reiterated the country's future energy plan, saying 
Experts are working on a hybrid energy generation system, including gas, coal, nuclear and wind. ESCOM is currently implementing stages three and four power cuts. In other news, the DA has argued in the High Court in Pretoria that the ANC's CADA deployment policy is unconstitutional. Its lawyers are contending that a political party, according to the law, may not recommend appointments to the public service as the apex law of the country requires that the civil service be professional and free from political interference. And the Mpumalanga Department of Education has suspended a male teacher after reports that he allegedly molested young boys at a school in the province. The teacher at Siboniwe Primary School at Pola Park in Kwamhlanga has since been arrested. I'll have these and other stories at the top of the hour. Hashtag SAFM Talking Point. Taking your calls on this conversation, 86 Romeo in KZN, good morning. Good morning uh, to you, Oliver, and to your guests as well as uh, SFM listeners. Uh, Oliver, I just want to ask a question about uh, this war between Russia and the Ukraine and the argument of Germany to supply. Can I just ask? Can I just ask Romeo? Just sorry to pause you there. Can I just ask that you speak a, a little bit louder for us? There, you're fading into the back. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Uh, it's still a little bit faint, but go ahead. Okay, I said I need to ask you a question to your guest. Mm. What is your question? Uh, yes, I just wanted to understand when they are saying uh, Russia signed an agreement with NATO a long time ago. Was it Russia or it was the Soviet Union that uh, NATO should not come around closer to the territory where Soviet Union is there or it was Russia? And when this thing was signed, was this signed under the United Nations observation so that we could find who could have breached the, the signing of that agreement? Mm. Because considering the issue, what is happening now, when I look at it, it looks like um, possible Ukraine might have went out of the agreement by trying to invite the Western within the area of where Soviet Union was the, uh, in charge, so we just want to find out who who could have breached that uh, agreement. Is it Russia or Ukraine, yeah. or the West? It's only that they wanted to uh, conquer the whole world. Okay, thank you so much for your question. Appreciate it, Faith. Do you want to respond to that? Yes. Um, so he, it's it's actually a very the way he framed the question is very interesting because um, as it turns out, the the argument was signed just at the juncture at which the, the Cold War was coming to an end. So if you want to be very technical about it, you would argue that it was the, the USSR in transition that was then at the, at the point of uh, becoming um, the Russian Federation that um, got into that argument. And it's important to mention that actually this argument with, with NATO, to some have argued that it was more of a gentleman's agreement rather than being uh, put to, to, to paper precisely. But this is actually what, in, in a sense, facilitated the goodwill um, towards the, the the end of the Cold War. So by that regard, it was a very significant yeah. um, agreement. And then what then happened, um, as I've alluded to previously in my comments, is that um, as the years went by, then we began to see NATO not only continuing its, its eastward expansion in terms of um, taking on board some of the, the, the former USSR states, so that, that by extension um, 
amount to essentially expansion. But the question of Ukraine um, became um, very important because um, not only, as I've mentioned, the, the Maidan revolution, which was the installment of a very anti-Russian um, pro-American um, uh, government in Kiev, um, I think raised the alarm quite critically in, in, in Moscow about the bigger intentions um, of NATO um, and also the bigger question about the activities that were happening uh, by um, Ukrainian forces, particularly the, the um, nationalist elements that were targeting the populations in, in, uh, in, in, in Luhansk and Donetsk. So this, I think, raises um, very significant security questions um, yeah. about NATO's ultimate um, intent in going forward. So I think that, for me, um, is just a very uh, snapshot of what um, essentially happened up to this moment in time. Yeah. Let's take some more calls. Arnold in Aconhook. Good morning. Morning, Oliver. Go, I think Germany is calculating this somehow very well. Remember, it, it, it has in a previous um, number of years did sell it, 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 it leopards fighting jets to Saudi Arabia, which was then used in Yemen. And it, it received a lot of uh, public outbreak, even from politicians themselves. But then at, at, at the same time, Germany is calculating this, looking at the fact that it, it seems as if there is a new creation of a military uh, groups, especially when you look at the fact that there's been allegation that Iran has been sending um, certain types of tanks to Russia so that it can be used in in Ukraine. And and once Germany can pull that in, that might even bring countries such as here. Lebanon, and, and we understand then the relations between Russia and, and China, which might then increase number of countries which are then involved in, 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 in this kind of war, which might make it to even worse, to even find a lasting peace in Ukraine. That's my contribution. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. Uh, do you want to reflect on that, uh, uh, Faith? Um, yes, I think also for me the other element that um, maybe is not often mentioned about um, sort of Germany's calculus in terms of the hesitancy to send yeah. like a two-time. I think it's also um, German policymakers are also really starting to question whether, and, and if you look at the, the amount of a bit of daylight that's emerging between the transatlantic um, alliance, particularly with the U.S., so they're beginning to question. The bigger motives about the, the U.S. Yes, it's been it's been the lead in terms of committing military aid to Ukraine, but it's in the question of advancing this as a proxy war, whether the U.S. is really committed to taking this to its logical conclusion, and or and if something does go wrong, perhaps Germany doesn't want to be culpable in terms of the U.S. pointing fingers and saying, but it was Germany's fault for not sending tanks um, in good time. So I don't think I think they want to avoid that kind of blowback. Yeah. Yeah. Later on in life, but they're also questioning. I think it's a question also. Of, it's a question of trust, um, and it's like, and it also why I'm bringing up the question of trust. Remember also um, when you look at the bigger question about the Nord Stream two um, element, which was which is the, the big um, pipeline between between the Europe and Russia, consequently with Germany um, benefiting as a key um, uh, uh, beneficiary of that pipeline, and how the U.S. has been um, rather 
opposed to, to the continued use of that pipeline. So essentially creating this gap between um, Russia and, 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 and Germany in terms of the energy cooperation. So yeah. I think that has left um, quite a bit of a bad taste in, in, in Germany in terms of just the bigger motive and, and who's to gain um, from, from um, that kind of, of, of uh, action on that part. And just a final theme I want to explore with you in the last two minutes that you and I have left. As you and I are speaking right now, it's a little bit off topic, but as you and I are speaking right now, Sergei Lavrov is in Pretoria behind closed-door meetings with the Minister of International Relations, Naledi Pando. He's on his Africa crusade of sorts. Is there anything to read into that? Um, I, I don't think so. I think I think Lavrov has been pretty consistent um, from the beginning. And I mean, um, people will say what they will about Russia, but I, I, I personally have tremendous respect for his um, expertise just as a seasoned diplomat. And obviously the key task for any diplomat is to advance your country's um, um, interest in the international arena. So that's precisely what he's doing. But I think he's also been, you can, you can also look at it in the terms of he's clarifying a lot of maybe questions that South Africa would have with regard to, to, to Russian intent in, in, in the war. And also bigger questions, I think, as, as with any bilateral meetings about just forging stronger bilateral relations uh, between two countries. But from my assessment, I think I, I don't think it's, it's something unexpected from Lavrov to, to be doing these usual um, visits. Um, he's been pretty articulate, pretty forthright in his comments. I mean, if you look at some of the speeches, including the last, the one that was done last week um, from the ministry, uh, Russian Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs, by his speech, a speech that lasted almost two hours. His intents have been clear. I don't think there's anything shadowy or planned. So, so, sorry, yes, Faith? Yes, I'm saying I don't think there's anything to understand about yeah. that other than the advancement of bilateral relations between the two. Let's see if we can squeeze in a final call. Nigel in Durban, good morning. Uh, good morning, Oliver. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my apologies if this is an unnecessary question, but you are aware, aren't you, that America and NATO are one of the same thing. America is NATO's major power. I, I, I ask that because... You keep referring to America and NATO. Yeah, yes, I'll tell you why I make that delineation. Very specifically because America negotiates or at least uh, interacts with, with, with the Ukraine as a bilateral partner, but also yes. as a geopolitical bloc through NATO. So on both those platforms, there is that, mm -hmm. and that's why I make that delineation. I understand. So uh, I, uh, this is an unnecessary question. <laughs> Thank you, Oliver. No, not unnecessary at all. Really do appreciate it. Just a voice Thank note I, wanna, I want us to reflect on faith as we close up. Morning, Oliver. Active season in Polokwane. The war is not between Ukraine and Russia, but between Russia and NATO. It only happened, unfortunately, that the war has been fought on Ukrainian soil. So it's NATO versus Russia. The battlefield is Ukraine. Thank you. Okay, and that's it. We're going to have to leave it there, Faith. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it. Faith Mabera as a senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue. Brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for being with us, for engaging with us. Really do appreciate it from myself, Levu and Kanya. We're back with you tomorrow. Cheers.